Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanate. Hi, this is Mike Passanate, and welcome back to the Hospital Finance Podcast. Today, we're going to be covering part one of our three-part series around uncompensated care, and I am joined by Bob Mahoney, who is a senior consultant on our reimbursement services team here at Bessler. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Michael, thank you. Nice to be here. I'm going to be talking about DISH today and how it relates to uncompensated care funding for hospitals. Yeah, that's that's really my first question. So it's going to be a three-part series, and uh, we're going to be talking about DISH first time out, and then we're going to be talking about the S10, and we're going to be talking about bad debt on different podcasts. But today you are going to focus on DISH. Um, why DISH? Why is that part of the entire uncompensated care pool? Well, the uncompensated care pool is such a significant number for hospitals and their bottom lines. And you really can't look at uncompensated care in terms of hospital reimbursement and the Medicare cost report without looking at DISH along with bad debt and the S10 as that's where they're all coming together. So today what I'm going to do is focus on how, what you need to do to keep your DISH numbers correct and positive and compliant, and also how this, how this ties in with your uncompensated care, where it's going to go on the bed, where it's going to go on the S10, and also how it affects bed debt. The uncompensated care number, and I'll probably repeat this a couple of times, for 2019, the final rule is $8 billion, significant number for hospitals, and DISH is a large part of that. So let's get something um, right out on the table because there was a ruling in December of 2018 by a federal judge in Texas declaring the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Um, and of course, DISH is affected by the uncompensa- uh, by the ACA. Sorry. Um, so is there any effect on DISH at this point? At this point, no. And as something goes through the court system, it will take time. But on December 14th, the federal judge in North Texas district ruled that the entire ACA was rendered unconstitutional after Congress in 2017 replaced the tax penalty, repealed the tax penalty enforcing the individual mandate. This ruling, of course, is being appealed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and possibly the Supreme Court before it's completely settled. Uh, so this would be probably late 2019 before we hear about it again and probably into 2020 if it goes to the Supreme Court. But, I mean, as most people on this podcast, most people remember, it was Section 3133 of the ACA, which changed the Medicare DISH starting in 2014. CMS adjusted Medicare DISH payments and 75% of the funding came from the newly insured population which was part of the uncompensated care pool, which, as I said earlier, was $6.8 billion in 2018 and is projected to be over $8 billion in 2019. So, Bob, you mentioned that 75% of the funding is coming from newly insured. What about the other 25%? The other 25%, which some people call a classic dish, is still very important. And it's how you qualify for DISH. And obviously, qualify for DISH gets you into the uncompensated care pool. And it's 25% based on your patient volume. So it's a very important number, and it triggers the whole uncompensated care and S10 worksheet. So given this new mix, is the importance of empirical DISH, uh, has that been reduced? Uh, yes and no. I mean, empirical DISH still is 
significant impact for many hospitals. Like I said, you need it to qualify to get into the uncompensated care pool and be dish. It affects your 340B, which is very important with pharmaceutical payments, drug charges we know being high. You know, the ACA with the Medicaid expansion allowed many states to expand their Medicaid programs. And a lot of hospitals qualified that hadn't previously qualified. And they're, you know, those hospitals are finding the challenges of less experience becoming dish hospitals and getting the UCC money. It does have its benefits, but there is some work to do with that. And you need to fill out your cost report properly and have the right documentation so you can even protect your appeal rights later on as these laws schemes are changing. Well, that's right. And, and hospitals work hard to make sure they get reimbursed properly. Bob, do you have any tips on what hospitals could be doing now? Uh, they need to opt optimize their Medicaid eligible days by capturing and validating every patient day eligible to be included in the Medicaid fraction of this calculation. Like I said, that kicks off the 20, that gets you to 25%, but also kicks off to 75%. And I mean, it's real important nowadays, it's a regulation that hospitals submit a clean and accurate log of Medicaid days with their cost report. And that's a requirement now, isn't that correct? Yes, that is a requirement in the 2019 final rule, a medical a Medicaid eligible day log that agrees with the days being claimed to be filed with the course reports. The hospitals need to file an, a report that is clear of errors and compliant, and that would preserve their appeal rights and makes the, the process even smoother. Yep, certainly a, a complex area, Bob, and, and one that's going to potentially be affecting hospitals that uh, maybe didn't deal with, with DISH in the past, so something that uh, everyone needs to be aware of. And it's important, and tying this all back together to UCC, not only when you submit the course report, you need to submit the log for your DISH days, but you also need to submit your bad debt log and an uncompensated care log. So these are big changes, and that's how the S10's going to really affect all of this and how you're paid, because it's a, ca a combination of your DISH money, your uncompensated care pool, and the hospital's bad debt. So you have to submit clean logs. And this is going to be a big number going forward. That's a 75%, and eventually it will be 100%. Hi, this is Mike Passanante, and welcome back to the Hospital Finance Podcast. Today we're looking at part two of our series around uncompensated care with a focus on bad debt. And to help me understand more about that topic, I'm joined by Dana Alward, who is a senior consultant on our reimbursement services team here at Bessler. Dana, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me again. So, Dana, let's walk through uh, some things around bad debt. First off, um, it's been rumored over the years that the reimbursement of Medicare bad debts is going to be eliminated. Uh, have there been any recent changes? No, not right now. While you are correct, the elimination of the reimbursement for Medicare bad debts has been under the radar for several years. CMS has reduced reimbursement down to 65% or 63% if accounting for sequestration. Despite the payment cuts, Medicare bad debts continue to be a major source of reimbursement for hospitals. Okay, great. So bad debts are here for the moment. Um, and, and now that they're included on Worksheet S10 and used for the allocation of the uncompensated care pool, do we see that changing at all? No. The cost reporting forms captures total bad debt and Medicare bad debts on separate lines. Total bad debts for the entire facility, including subproviders, 
are reported on Worksheet S10, line 26, and should be inclusive of the Medicare bad debts. Line 2701 was added to capture Medicare allowable bad debts for the entire facility. The non-reimbursable Medicare bad debts, the 35% reduced portion, which is mainly the deductibles and coinsurance, is not subject to the cost to charge ratio, while the non-Medicare bad debts is subject to the cost to charge ratio. Understood. So what are the requirements for total bad debt to be included on Worksheet S10? The total bad debts should contain the reconciliation to the working trial balance and the audited financial statements. Keep in mind the bad debt provision is an estimate and it may not be the actual bad debt write-offs. If that's the case, the reconciliation should show the following. The total bad debts written off, any recoveries netted, non-hospital bad debts removed, such as physician fees, home health agency, and so forth, non-patient liabilities, these would be your denials or non-covered services, and any other descriptions or differences between the reported amount and the audited financials, such as your year-end entries or accruals. And Medicare bad debts? The requirements for Medicare bad debts remain the same. For a Medicare bad debt to be reimbursable, it must meet the following criteria. The collection effort must be reasonable and similar to non-Medicare patients. The write-off is more than 120 days from the first bill date to the patient. Amount reported is related to covered services. Amounts are limited to deductible and coinsurance. And the amounts deemed uncollectible at the time written off, such as indigent or Medicaid crossovers. Um, also, make sure you have any amounts returned from the collection agency. Okay, so thanks for, for laying the foundation uh, around bad debt for us. So, Dana, do you have any suggestions for hospitals regarding bad debts? Yes. Uh, the 2019 IPPS final rule requires the submission of a detailed bad debt listing that matches the reported bad debt amounts filed on the cost report. Hospitals need to file accurate bad debt listings that are free of errors and compliance issues. Since S10 will be subject to audits, it is highly recommended that hospitals maintain bad debt listings for the entire complex that mirrors the Medicare bad debt listing layout. Hospitals should match claims information to their patient financial system or PFS data in order to optimize their bad debt. We need to be cognizant of not just Medicare, but for all payers. Be sure to validate every patient bad debt which is included on the cost report. The collection efforts should be consistent with the Medicare rules. There may be recoveries made in the current year for previously reported bad debts. Make sure to identify these amounts. Also keep an eye out on major increases or decreases from year to year. These types of swings may trigger further sampling or explanations for the max. Max will be looking for duplicates. So in the event a patient moves from the bad debt listing to the charity care side, be sure those accounts are reviewed. There may be offsets or reclasses for any patient that may move from one listing to the other. Ultimately, these accounts fall under the total entire compensated care costs, but the cost-to-charge ratio may or may not affect these reclasses if they're moved to the insured charity care line. Great detail there, Dana. Um, can you go, go a little bit further and tell us um, the level of detail that might be needed for an audit? Yes. Uh, MAC auditors will be on the lookout for detailed patient listings similar to the Medicare bad debt logs. In addition to the proof of reasonable collection efforts, auditors will want to see the Revenue Code, or UB Code, and CPT HICPIC summaries. This is to ensure allowable charges are being reported, mainly non-physician fees. 
it is recommended that patient payments and third-party payments and adjustments be separated. It is likely patient responsibility driven by the remit will be tested. And furthermore, don't forget to keep your bad debt, charity care, and financial assistance policies handy. Great advice, Dana. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today to talk about bad debt as it relates to the entire pool of uncompensated care. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. Hi, this is Mike Passanante, and welcome back to the award-winning Hospital Finance Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about issues to watch out for in the preparation of Worksheet S10. And joining me to discuss that topic is Jeff Wolf, who is the Director of Reimbursement Services at Bessler. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Jeff, before we dive into the very specific issues around Worksheet S10, can you talk to our audience a little bit about how the S10 is playing into the entire uncompensated care pool these days? Well, S10, um, as most people know, has gained importance over the last couple of years in that um, the disproportionate share payments is being uh, allocated 25% between the old empirical dish calculation based on the um, eligible patients or their Medicaid eligible patients. The uh, S10 has taken the 75% of that calculation and is being used to identify the amount of money that each hospital will be entitled to. So the importance of S10 has really risen in the last three, four years. For anyone who's familiar with the S10, there are two methods for preparing that worksheet. They are the GL versus the transaction codes. Can you tell us what the differences are between the two? Yeah, simply put, um, the general ledger method uh, uses data that's eventually booked into the general ledger or the trial balance for the hospital. And people use that to identify their net reimbursement, their charity care, and their bad debts as they're written off. Um, and that method works for identifying some totals. Um, but it's not very detailed. As you think of general ledger transactions, they're not by patient. They're not uh, uh, detailed enough for what these audits are looking for. When we talk about the transaction code method, on the other hand, it's extremely detail-oriented. It's basically the data files are the transaction codes that are posted for every patient account during the year identifying net reimbursement charity care and bed debt write-offs. This means that the GL method uh, does not contain that level of data, but the um, transaction codes do, and they're going to be much better for audits. Jeff, how does this affect the net revenue calculations? Well, the GL method is simpler to utilize and to process the data. The values are easier to reconcile to the financial statements. What the GL method does not handle well is when the primary payer status changes after the provision of services. In these cases, the GL method is reporting incorrect values for the net reimbursement for those specific payers. The transaction code method, on the other hand, is more difficult to use and has massive amounts of data that the facility must manage and process. But the results are more accurate since the transaction codes are derived from the patient accounting system and that data can be generated with the current primary and secondary peers rather than the data at the time of treatment. So the treatment, uh, excuse me, the transition code method does have more difficulty with reconciliations, but the patient level of detail is exactly what's needed during the audit. And how does this affect charity care and bad debts? This is the section of S10 where the GL method completely breaks down. Uh, both the charity care and the bad debt listings must be by patient slash encounter. 
therefore, using the GL method for filing S10 will cause a lot of data rework and reconciliation problems during the audit. On the other hand, the transaction method, this is where it shines because you are in detail by patient, by transaction. You can absolutely show the transaction codes related to every charity care or bad debt write-off. Again, since the transaction code method is derived from the patient accounting system, the data can be generated as needed directly showing patient uh, payments, the contractual adjustments, the write-offs, uh, et cetera. That makes it much easier uh, to manage uh, for the requirements of audit. And Jeff, if you're um, recommending the use of the transaction method for the S10, how do you identify and reconcile the detailed data? Well, when we talk about the transaction code method, we're actually talking about utilizing a minimum of three different data sources in order to provide the necessary information. The minimum data sources are the detailed charge records, the transaction codes, or otherwise known as the uh, payment and adjustment file, and the 835 payment remittances. Each of these files will need to be reconciled either to the general ledger or the financial statements to ensure that you're dealing with the correct data. So Jeff, let's talk through the data sources. First, um, walk us through detailed charges. Okay, so the detailed charges are a summary by patient of all the charges posted for each encounter by RevCode. At this point, we're not bringing in the DRG or the HICPIC codes, but as S10 evolves, these fields may be needed, so having that data available will be important. To ensure that you have all the charges for all the patients treated in a year, that data must be reconciled from the total patient charges detail file to the general ledger and or the financial statements. Okay, and now walk us through transaction codes. So the transaction codes are a detailed listing of all payments and adjustments to patient accounts for the year. This represents all of the claim processing and collection efforts that are performed on a patient account and claim. While this data is massive and it is commingled, you can separate out and ID certain categories of transactions and be able to reconcile those categories to the general ledger of financial statements. The kind of categories we're talking about would be contractual adjustments. Those can be identified directly to the GL. Your total payments, in other words, your cash receipts, or your total write-offs, all of those can be reconciled back to the GL as specific dollar amounts. Jeff, the third data element is the 835-837 transactions. Tell us about those. So the 835 transactions are summary claim adjustment data by patient encounter. These data elements include insurance payments, patient responsibilities, non-coverage amounts. Um, these payments should be reconciled in total by patient to the insurance payments in the transaction codes. So it's very important to reconcile the transaction codes before you reconcile the 835 because the 835 only can be reconciled to individual claims and to individual patients. So there's kind of a hierarchy. You have to do the total charges first, you have to do the transaction codes second, and then you have to be able to do the 835s. And if you're using all of these detail records, which can contain millions of, of records, literally, Jeff, what are the critical data elements uh, that people should be paying attention to? Well, one of the most important ones is identifying the critical payers, primary and secondary payer types. 
of those, you've got your Medicare, your Medicaid, you have your uh, CHIP and your state and local independent uh, indigent programs, but you also need to know which private insurance are in network as well as out of network. And that takes a little bit of work uh, with your um, patient accounting folks to make sure you identify which programs or which policies are in and out of network. Um, you also need to identify the transaction codes that represent some of the following categories. Things like contractual adjustments, insurance payments, patient payments, write-offs, length of stay adjustment, and other miscellaneous adjustments. Each of those categories needs to be a separate bucket of analysis under the transaction codes. Number one, so you can reconcile them back, but number two, so that you can use them in the analysis uh, by patient as you're moving forward on your S10. Jeff, how does all of this data get summarized and analyzed for supporting documentation? Well, once you've reconciled the data, you'll need to identify the patients into specific buckets. The first thing you'll need to do is identify the primary payers for the net reimbursement calculations. Then you'll need to identify the transaction categories to identify the charity care versus the bad debt write-off amounts. Be aware that a patient can end up in multiple categories. So for instance, a Medicaid patient that could have a charity care write-off and could have a bad debt could end up in three different buckets um, as we're walking through this. That what this means is that you need to make sure you've identified the transaction codes appropriately for charity versus bad debt so you can separately identify those and not count them twice on the, on the listings. Any patient that was written off in the current year that also had their services in the current year could be in the net reimbursement section as well as have patient responsibility that either is written off as charity or bad debt. So again, being aware of exactly what your transaction codes and putting them into the appropriate buckets is going to be very, very important. In summary, it's really, really critical to make sure that you look at the data categories, the transaction codes, putting them into the correct buckets based on the, med the CMS guidelines. The quality and accuracy of your transaction codes in the patient accounting system will become more and more critical as we evolve through S10. And this is the third uh, installment of our series around uncompensated care. We've previously covered bad debt and DISH. If you'd like to get our paper around uncompensated care to read more in depth about all of those topics, you can go to Bessler.com forward slash insights. Just click on the reimbursement button and you'll see the paper there along with a host of other resources available around Medicare reimbursement. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you very much. This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.